Hey guys, it's Abdul for the good folks over at Leon Tailoring, 809 North Delaware, downtown Indianapolis. It may be cold outside, but Leon Tailoring keep you nice and warm without burning a hole in your pocket. That's right, if you need a nice new coat or maybe need a sweater or a heavier jacket or a heavier blouse, no matter what it is, Leon Tailoring, Larry, Norm, Kim, and Judy can take care of you this winter season. So, like I said, it's the Midwest, it's cold outside, but Leon Tailoring always keep you nice and warm and comfortable, and once again, without burning holes in any of your pockets. So swing on by Leon Tailoring. I know they'll be happy to see you. Leon Tailoring, 809 North Delaware, downtown in Indianapolis. Excellent. Welcome. Welcome. My name is Amy Stark. I'm the communications coordinator for the Indiana Council on World Affairs. Joining me is Dr. Fiona Hill and Abdul Hakim Shabazz and also Ray Montagno. Um, on January 19th at 7 p.m. Eastern, the ICWA uh, kicks off their Distinguished Speaker Series by welcoming Dr. Fiona Hill to share a program entitled Ukraine One Year Later. Dr. Hill is graciously accepted to do a 15-minute live Zoom preview, and I could think of no one better to ask to be the interviewer than Abdul Hakim Shabazz, who is a broadcaster and an influencer throughout the state of Indiana. And so now I'm going to turn over the Zoom to a professional, Mr. Shabazz. All right. Thank you, uh, Amy. Always happy to help out the World Council. Dr. Hill, thank you very much uh, for joining us today. We really do appreciate it. Uh, let's start by just asking one year later, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. How would you assess how things have gone so far for both the Ukrainians and the Russians and the world for that matter? Well, look, this has been a massive catastrophe, and I don't think anybody needs me to tell them that. I mean, we're all feeling it. I mean, including in Indiana and obviously, you know, here in uh, Washington, D.C. This is one of those conflicts that changes the world, whether we like it or not. And in fact, I mean, it's on such a scale that, of course, all kinds of comparisons are already being made with World War One and World War Two. We've had uh, the nuclear saber rattling by Vladimir Putin that's put us back to those terrible memories that, you know, some of us will have of the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, back in the 1960s and also the uh, war scares of the 1980s during the Euro Missile Crisis, which was, you know, mostly in Europe, but also was affecting the United States. It's the largest refugee uh, crisis since World War Two. And of course, the scale of deaths uh, uh, on both sides of the conflict of Ukraine and uh, Russia uh, are really kind of beggaring the mind. If we've really got 100,000 casualties in Russia, that is, uh, I mean, that's on top of uh, the military casualties in Ukraine, of course, which has been invaded. But that far uh, outweighs uh, the number of casualties that the Soviet Union had during its conflict in Afghanistan, which was one of the precipitating factors for the uh, collapse of uh, the Soviet Union, you know, back in uh, the late 70s, 1980s. Uh, there was about 14,000 people were killed as uh, soldiers in the Soviet for armed forces, which also included Ukraine and, you know, other uh, former Soviet republics then. And 100,000 casualties, you know, here for Russia in this conflict, on top of all of the civilians killed. And of course, we're speaking now on Martin Luther King Day against the backdrop of this horrific bombing of the town of uh, Dnipro in uh, Ukraine, where several apartment blocks have been taken out. We're seeing war crimes evidently being committed, civilian infrastructure and populations being targeted. And all of this was supposed to start, in Vladimir Putin's mind, as a special military operation, something limited back on February 24th, uh, 2022. So this has been a, a catastrophe of colossal proportions. Uh, it's interesting, too, because uh... 
you you said Mr. Putin uh, said it's going to be like a militia military operation. Obviously, one year later, it looks like there's any end uh, inside. Do you think the Russians maybe sort of underestimated uh, how the Ukrainian how the Ukrainians and how the world would react? Yeah, and I mean also under uh, overestimated their own ability to to pull this. There's a lot of underestimation and overestimation going on at the same time. Uh, the underestimation of Ukraine comes um, in multiple ways. On the one part, they didn't think that the Ukrainians would fight back to the extent that they have. They underestimated the strength of the Ukrainian military, thinking it would fold. They also perhaps overestimated their influence on Ukrainian politics. Basically, Putin thought that he'd bought all Ukrainian politicians, including uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, through you know various corruption uh, networks of oligarchs, business people who uh, were uh, basically in these uh, industrial sectors that Ukraine was dominated really by Russian influence. There was also the penetration of the Ukrainian intelligence services by the Russian intelligence services. They thought they had it all sewn up. And they basically thought that somebody like Zelensky, who'd been an actor, uh, who'd been uh, heavily involved in activities in Russia, was Russian speaking, Jewish, that he wasn't really a, a Ukrainian patriot. They figured that his resolve wasn't even there and that basically Ukraine would fall apart at the first application of extreme pressure. And then, you know, the Russians completely underestimated how the rest of the world would react. And frankly, I think we all underestimated ourselves too, right? I mean, if you were asking the average American, the average Brit, the average um, European, German, French, you know, you name it, about what they would, how they would react to this, what they would do on February 23rd, they would never have anticipated the extent to which Europe has rallied behind this. And also the, the way that Ukraine has captured the imagination of Americans. You know, when Russians would ask me and other colleagues before this, what does Ukraine mean to you? It was always hard pressed for people to say beyond Ukrainian Americans and, you know, populations out in the Midwest, for example, or, you know, our support for Ukraine's independence and sovereignty and territorial integrity. The idea that people would be putting themselves on the line for Ukraine seemed far fetched. And so, of course, all of that has come into play. We're talking today uh, to Dr. Fiona Hill. She'll be giving a presentation on uh, Thursday, the 19th. Uh, to the Indian World Affairs Council. Uh, so we're having a preview, sort of preview of that conversation uh, right here, right now. Uh, Dr. Hill, uh, how would you uh, sort of score uh, Prime Minister Zelensky's performance on this? Like you said, you know, he was an actor. We, we looked like there was a lot of underestimation on, on both sides, but uh, how would you describe his performance over this past year? Well, look, I mean, if if, if we were, um, you know, he was in a performance, we'd be giving him, you know, multiple uh uh, basically standing ovations, wouldn't we? We're kind of thinking of him as a performer because he has uh, really exceeded all expectations, probably even his own. Uh, and I think the fact that he is a performer has come into play here. He has stepped into the role of wartime leader uh, with um, an incredible adeptness and shown real courage and resilience and Everybody is, you know, basically pointing out, making these comparisons, Winston Churchill, you know, that he's channeling his inner Winston Churchill. Not every wartime leader does rise to the occasion in that way, and he's been able to do it. And he's obviously found deep reserves of resilience within himself, just his ability to perform and to play a role. And he's really channeling now the the whole spirit of Ukraine itself. He's put Ukraine on centre stage globally by through this performance. Now, if we'd looked at that beforehand, and again, going back to how Putin and the people in the Kremlin miscalculated, he wasn't very popular in Ukraine on the eve of the war. His uh, popularity had fallen and he'd been a kind of a compromise car uh, candidate in the elections outside the, uh, the, of the, the box. 
trying to um, basically it was more of a sign of Ukraine's was so fed up with everybody else who'd gone before when he was elected. Not that people were sort of seeing him as somebody who was going to be so essential in this kind of environment because nobody was anticipating that. He'd been embroiled in political infighting. The Ukrainian economy uh, was um, in something of a crisis. He wasn't seen as being, you know, perhaps the most adept leader on the eve of the conflict. And now he's proven, uh, you know, really that he was the kind of person they absolutely needed for this kind of crisis. And on the flip side of that, how would you uh, sort of rate Vladimir Putin? Because uh, once again, talk about uh, sort of an overestimation. If anyone gets the overestimator award of 20, 2022, it's got to be uh, Vladimir Putin. Well, that, look, that's very uh, absolutely true. I think Putin has been in power for so long, 22 years, 23 years now, we've gone into 2023, that he's started to think of himself as infallible. He's the symbol of the state. He can't do any wrong. Every time something goes wrong, you know, he pulls a rabbit out of a hat, and you know something uh, uh, basically changes. And that's you know part of the problem that we have now. Putin refuses to even admit to himself. Perhaps he can't even do that. That so many things have gone wrong. He actually sees that he can still do this. He can still achieve the goals that he had of getting to capitulate, taking Ukraine off the map, annexing Ukrainian territory, and uh, forcing back. Uh, all of the support that Ukraine has got from Europe, the West, uh, the United States. So Putin still believes that he can adapt to the situation and he can take victory out of the jaws of defeat. And of course, you know, we're watching how he does that. It's been being absolutely brutal and ruthless. Basically, Vladimir Putin still thinks that he can bomb Ukraine into submission and that by raising the spectre of more carnage, uh, the use of nuclear weapons and the, the battlefield, for example, they can get the rest of us to pull back. And of course, the wars had all kinds of global impacts. It's uh, imperiled food, food security around the world in um, Africa and the Middle East, uh, for example, places that were very much dependent on Ukrainian grain as well as Russian grain and the experiences blockade of the Black Sea that uh, Putin has imposed. Also, energy security, you know, pulling um, you know, the plug literally on oil and gas. Uh, for Europe, Putin's kind of assumed that everybody else would be weak and would show weakness. And he still thinks that he can push everybody's buttons, that he can uh, turn the rest of the world against Ukraine by using the United States as a foil there. This is all about the United States. And for all the countries out there that you know feel aggrieved about things the United States has done, he's been framing this as an existential battle, not with Ukraine, the United States and the Western NATO. And a lot of people have bought into that because Putin just simply thinks that he can talk his way out of this, bomb his way out of this, uh, use disinformation and propaganda, and that, you know, we will all pull back. So right now, he doesn't think that he has basically been the greatest underestimator or the greatest overestimator. He still thinks that he's got this. Uh, our guest on the program today is Dr. Fiona Hill. Uh She's speaking on Thursday with the Indiana Council on World Affairs about the situation uh, in Ukraine. She's with the Brookings Institute. So, Dr. Alexa, we appreciate uh, you being with us. Uh, let's look, uh, look forward. Uh, how far, how much longer do you see uh, this conflict uh, this conflict going? Well, look, that's really hard to say. I mean, yeah. I, I hate to say it. I mean, I don't have a crystal ball. And you know, anybody who's giving you concrete predictions, they're really kind of basing this more on rule of thumb judgments than they are on any kind of um, hard data that we can really use to predict where this is heading. I mean, there are certain trends that we can see here. 
uh, and when we could see that this could go on for a heck of a long time because both sides already dug in. And if we think about some of these World War One analogies that have come up, you can see trench warfare, uh, particularly in the region of the Donbass, that's been contested now since 2014. You've got to remember that's already been going on a long time. Russia annexed the peninsula of, U of uh, Crimea in Ukraine in 2014 and started off a war in the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine. And so, you know, we're getting close to a decade of that right now. And so if we put that in that context, we've probably still got quite a ways to go because we've got trenches, we've got both the sides dug in. We remember World War One went on for a very long time in trench warfare. The battle is not just on the front line or behind the front lines and all this horrible bombardment of um, civilian infrastructure, but it's also a political battle. And the, you know the Russians are waging this in the United Nations. They're waging this with other countries, you know, further afield that they want to help them avoid sanctions and to uh, you know keep on uh, their support, their political support. It's in the propaganda and information space. So really, it's up to us um, to how this ends and how long this lasts. I mean, when I mean us, I don't mean just the United States, but the, the United States working with its allies, not just our NATO allies, European allies, but Japan, South Korea, Australia, New Zealand, and all the other countries in the world who would actually like to see this stop. And that actually includes not just India. And you know, many of the people listening to this may have noted that the Indian government's been quite outspoken on wanting to see this war end. And they're in a very difficult situation uh, kind of stuck between Russia, China, the United States, Pakistan, and difficult neighborhood they're in there. And they would just like this to stop and to go away because it's really creating a lot of problems for them and for other regional countries. Also China, this is not something that China wanted to see. And if we can work with countries that, you know, we may have a difficult relationship with like China on trying to constrain the ability of Putin to keep waging this war, we can help to bring it to a conclusion you know, far faster than it might otherwise be. But it requires a very serious diplomatic effort, not just what we're doing so far, which is giving Ukraine a lot of military equipment to fight the war and training to use this equipment. It requires a full-on diplomatic effort as well, and, and all the things that we're also doing to put pressure on Russia to constrain their abilities to conduct the war on the economic and financial side. Our final question. For you, Dr. Hill, and thank you very much uh, for your time today. We really do uh, appreciate it. Oh, it's uh, great you, to be with you, Abdul. Thank you so much. You, you, you and your time. Uh, we talk about uh, the, a diplomatic solution. Uh, what is it? Because obviously, it's it's not like the, the Russians want $100 million, Ukraine wants to give them 50, so we split the difference at 75 or something like that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. What, what What is the diplomatic solution? Is it is it giving back land? Is it, is it, a, is it a ceasefire? Is it uh, Ukraine agreeing not to join NATO? What, what does that diplomatic solution look like? Well, look, it's going to be complex and, you know, there are many different things that could be on the table here, as you've suggested. But one of those is actually trying to get a cessation of hostilities. So we're far away from the kinds of negotiation process that we would like to see here. And I want to also make it clear that we're not likely to find some ideal solution, because, as you said, it's not that easy. And you've already laid out there that this isn't just a kind of a bargaining. And any uh, solution is going to resolve, or any process that might lead towards a resolution, going to involve some major compromises on the part of Russia. Because pretty much what Putin is saying, well, yeah, we could end the world war tomorrow. I will stop all of this if Ukraine acknowledges the fact that I've taken all their territory or all this territory and recognizes it's being part of Russia. Well, that is not acceptable for everyone else either, because that sets a precedent that uh, for kinds of activities that we saw happening in the world in the 20th century and in previous centuries before. We said after World War II, 
no way we are never going to allow uh basically the invasion of countries annexation of territory and changes of borders by force and you know we've tried to stick to that throughout the whole of the cold war as well and putin's basically saying well no sorry um i'm showing that might is right and that russia still has its imperial rights to retake territory and we just can't let that happen so we're going to have to find mechanisms for not acknowledging russia's seizure of territory i mean the irony of all of this is when russia annexed crimea in 2014 that prior to its invasion of the whole of ukraine after this there was actually discussions going on of finding a process that would over a longer period of time perhaps moving towards some kind of recognition of russia's so not sovereignty but let's just say uh, you know de facto uh, rule of crimea uh, we were working on the kinds of processes that people keep talking about now but it's very hard to see something like that at this juncture after this brutality this carnage and every violation of every international norm we can think of so we're gonna to have to be creative here so this is a time for creative solutions as well as you know really kind of thinking about this in all of its different dimensions there's no easy answer to uh, this conflict and what we're seeing of course is the united states europe it's not just the united states on its own that people seem to think of but uh, the rest of the world and, and in fact also watching very carefully what's uh, happening here watching very closely a real desire to have ukraine regain as much territory as it can you know basically before we move on to you know some uh, process but there has to be a cessation of hostilities just on vladimir putin's terms he still wants the capitulation of ukraine and we have to push back against this because it doesn't bode well for everyone else including ourselves after this, if he gets away with it. Dr. Fiona Hill, uh, speaking uh, Thursday at the Indian uh, Council on World Affairs, Dr. Hill, thank you very much for being with us. Always appreciate you uh, and your hard work and all you folks at the Brookings Institute. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks for having me today. Thank you. And thanks, Abdul. And thanks to all who tuned in. I hope you're able to join us on January 19th at 7 p.m. as we invite Dr. Hill to present Ukraine one year later. And I hope all of you have uh, a great day. And if you need any more information, go to indianaworld.org. Thanks. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.